the Jewish views on the Western Wall for All. A landmark new law means that it's officially legal for men and women to pray together. On that subject, we'll discuss how can we get the balance right between respect for women and observing tradition and making sure you're having a giggle at JW3. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Progressive Jews in the UK, America and Israel have welcomed a landmark decision to establish a section of the Western Wall in Jerusalem for mixed prayers. The area will be registered in Israel's Law of Holy Sites. The Israeli pressure group Women of the Wall has campaigned for equal prayer rights for 27 years, often getting arrested in the process. Visitors will now be able to decide whether they want to go to the gender-segregated Orthodox section or to the area where men and women can pray together. In East London, a 14-year-old boy was arrested after throwing fireworks at Jewish passers-by in Hackney. He was first detained by the neighbourhood watch group Shomrim, who called the police. The youth was released on bail. No one was injured during the incident. An Australian stationery chain has denied that its sale of a globe marking Palestine, but not Israel, was motivated by politics. The company, Typo, insisted it simply didn't have room. The design represented Israel with a two on the map, and users were referred to a key on the globe for the name. Typo faced threats of a boycott from Israel's supporters. A spokesperson said the globe was being recalled from sale as new artwork was being sourced from their supplier. 21 relatives of Israeli victims of terror have been treated to a trip to London by the One Family Organisation. The group of bereaved mothers and grandmothers aged between 40 and 70 visited landmarks including Parliament and the London Eye. One woman, Bracha Kupinski, who lost her son in November 2014 after he was attacked by a Palestinian terrorist in a Jerusalem synagogue, said the visit had been a moving experience. And finally, proposals have been unveiled for a new state-aided Jewish secondary school in North London. The school, which will be known as Kedem High, should open in the borough of Barnet next year. The announcement comes as several pupils were left without a secondary school place for the current academic year. That's the news, and now the sport. It's been described as the greatest ever Jewish football game after a 12-goal cup thriller between Hendon and Redbridge saw the Essex side win 4-3 on penalties. Victorious manager David Garbatz told the Jewish News, it was without doubt the most amazing game of football I've ever been witness to, with Redbridge's John Jacobs also adding, this was the greatest game of football I have ever been involved with. Sometimes you have to just say the football gods aren't with you. You can watch all the thrilling highlights from the game online at jewishnews.co.uk. The biggest event of this weekend will be the Super Bowl on Sunday evening and it will see Carolina Panthers Jewish general manager Daniel Gentleman looking for a win in his fourth title attempt when they take on the Denver Broncos. And finally, Natalia Cohen, who made history by becoming part of the first all-female crew to row across the Pacific, has told the Jewish News how her nine-month, 9,600-mile trek was down to mind over matter. The full interview with her can be read online at jewishnews.co.uk. 
Well, thank you very much to Richard Ferrer there for our sports update. Richard stays with us and welcome to this edition to The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me, as I said, is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Rich, who knew you had such a sporting flair about you? Should we get back to what people know you for and tell us what's on the front page for this week? I can chew your ear off about cricket until the cows come home. But yeah, let's talk about this week's Jewish news. <laughs> As you frequently do with Clive Roslin, still. <laughs> yeah, this week's paper, we've put the front page, it's turned into a giant chalkboard with what a result and a big tick on the front to uh, mark the fact that we had our uh, Jewish Schools Awards a week ago. We've touched on it briefly in the show a couple of times now, but it's worth uh, a repeat mention, particularly of the surprise £60,000 donation given by somebody in the audience. And he's been named in the paper. It's Andrew Wolfson, who's uh, Charles Wolfson Charitable Trust also sponsored part of the awards. Wonderful moment for everybody there and uh, a great reflection on the community and it will enormously help our schools in the year to come. Certainly well and it's it's very very impressive uh, donation I am sure. Moving on we have the latest stats I believe for anti-semitism. Is it good or bad news? Well as our page two headline states anti-semitism is down but there is no room for complacency it's the third worst on record but after 2014 saw the worst ever i suppose uh, it's good news of sorts luckily attacks on people and property remains at a minimum it's uh, minor incidents that uh, we still need to be worried about but it's certainly moving in the right direction bizarrely as we went to press with this story the campaign against anti-semitism which is a grassroots organization that flourished as a result of uh, grassroots action that they undertook during the gaza war in 2014 issued their own survey in which they said it was 18% up and the worst year on record, with 10 police uh, forces around the country unable to actually deal with anti-Semitism properly. We'll go with the CST figures. They're the uh, ones that we go with and they're the standard figures for the community. This week we had two surveys, both of which I think pointed in different directions. And how much detail do we actually get? Do they break down these figures? Are they broken down to, say, specific area to types of anti-Semitism, whether it's verbal, physical abuse? How much detail do we get from this or do we just know the general all round? It's a very wide-ranging and fulsome account. It breaks everything down from extreme violence, ab- abusive behaviour, attacks on people and property, literature, social media. Everything's broken down. In total, there were just under 1,000 incidents reported. Obviously, I imagine there were a lot more, but the 1,000, well, it's actually 924 in total, indicates it's the third worst on record. Okay, well, let's have a look at another story. And I think everyone can recall the horrible tragedy that took place at the Munich Olympic Games, the terror incidents that took place all those years back. But the survivor, one of the survivors, I think the only survivor, if I'm not mistaken, in saying this, Fran, Dan Alon, has spoken out about that horrible time in history. What's he been saying? Yes, as you say, he was the sole survivor of the Munich Olympic Games massacre, which took place in 1972. And Dan Alon was in London for a fundraising dinner with the British friends of Yad Serra. It's an Israeli disability charity in which he was talking about his experiences. Jenny Fraser has actually interviewed him for us in the Jewish News this week. And he has said, he's recalled the moment when he had to go back into the apartment where the tragedy took place. 
pack up the belongings of his Israeli teammates who were sadly gone. And he was looking around and he saw their personal effects, including children's toys. I mean, it's really quite tragic. He being the only survivor having to carry out this terrible task while obviously mourning all his friends and his fellow Israeli athletes. He also explains how he and teammate Yehuda Weinstein, who was only 17 at the time of this terrible massacre, huddled together and managed to actually jump out of the building into the arms of the German police. So it's really quite a remarkable story of survival in the face of uh, attack. And one can only begin to fathom what must have been going through their minds as they tried to fight for their lives. Okay, I'm sure that is definitely worth the read. That's on page four of this week's paper. Richard, the Iranian foreign minister is in town. What's he been up to? Yeah, Javad Zarif. It seems like only moments ago that we finally saw the signing of this nuclear treaty from Iran for the rest of the world. They were going to roll back their nuclear ambitions, sanctions are going to be lifted, etc. And now here he is in London, literally days, weeks later after this, with Britain rolling out the red carpet. It's been a cause of great consternation for the community, saying it's a an insult to British values that, that this man is here. Let's not forget that this is a country uh, that's still fighting proxy wars across the Middle East, fighting Israel in terms of the, the, the way it approaches it, uh, Israel in terms of the way it speaks about Israel, references Israel, the way it funds Hezbollah. Let's not forget the uh, 1994 bombing of the Jewish Cultural Center in Argentina, uh, 85 people dead. This is a man with a lot to answer for, and it leaves a very bad taste in the mouth for a lot of people to seeing Iran being encouraged, shall we say, to have a place at the world table here in London only weeks after they signed the uh, nuclear deal. But of course, there will be those out there who are listening and who may be of the opinion that when the age-old expression comes to mind of keep your friends close but your enemies closer, is it not better that a stable country such as our own are able to build up an understanding, a relationship with the Iranian government, keep tabs on them and have a better understanding of what might be going through their minds in order to try and help make them realise that not every decision they make might be that, well, good, for want of a better term. I think you need to see some mood music change, especially in Tehran before I think these dignitaries end up in London. For for one, I, I, some of our listeners might remember that only last week there was an announcement of a Holocaust cartoon competition that was sanctioned by the Iranian government. And now this man is here amongst us being touted as, as this, this, this great partner, if you want, in peace in the Middle East, etc. I think we're, we're turning a blind eye in many respects to what they are culpable of, what they're culpable of, what they're capable of, and what they continue to do. And I think the signing of a document, the signing of a non-nuclear proliferation pact is, is a, certainly a move in the right direction. But perhaps his appearance here in London is a little bit too soon. But something has to change. It has to change at some stage. So why not now, if never? If you don't make a start trying to reason with people who need to be reasoned with, is it not better to try and make that attempt sooner rather than later, or else the atrocities that you've just mentioned are going to surely keep happening? 
I'd like to hope that there are some very, very tough questions being asked this man, some very, very serious issues being raised. He's at Portcullis House. He's speaking to the leaders of this country, he's speaking to politicians, he's speaking to very important people that make foreign decisions and policy issues that affect Israel and affect a lot of other democracies around the world. So as long as this man is being taken to task on issues that affect us as a community and affect Israel and affect democratic life across the world, then yes. But if he is literally having the red carpet rolled out in the same way that we saw Saudi Arabia touted as this great partner, it's it's just not good enough and it leaves a very bad taste in the mouth. Okay, well, let's watch this space. How about if we end on something a little lighter, shall we, Fran? The X-Files, who knew there was a Jewish link to it? Well, yes, we have managed to find many Jewish links, in fact, to The X-Files, which is returning next week. For people who are X-Files, that's spelt with a P-H, they are the fans of The X-Files. This is probably the most exciting thing that has happened since, well, since the last Star Wars was out, if you're a Star Wars fan. It's I that can tell on the big. look in your face, though, that you, you seem quite excited by the return of The X-Files. Well, The X-Files was something that I did watch in my youth, Phil. Yes, I did. And it's nice to see Mulder and Scully are coming back. We found a few Jewish links, albeit a little bit tenuous, but hey, it's nice to have a bit of a lighter piece every now and then. We found, obviously, David Duchovny is half Jewish, so we've gone in on that. We won't dwell on which half, though. Well, the you know, perhaps not normally the right half, but we'll take that half this week. And we also have suggestions that Mulder himself is Jewish as well. There's a few sort of clues in the last series that perhaps he came from Jewish roots himself. Of course, Mark Snow, the composer of that very famous tune now, he's Jewish. And we also have the fact that The X-Files was inspired by another show, The Twilight Zone. We all remember that. And that was written by a Jewish writer as well, Rodman Rod Edward Serling. So there you go. We found all the Jewish links. So as you say, they are a little tenuous, but they are there all the same. So, but I think the same can be said with most programmes, really, can't you? That there's got to be a Jewish link somewhere along the line, because let's be honest, I don't think anyone does media like the Jews do. Jews and Hollywood, it goes hand in hand, really, doesn't it? You'd be hard-pressed to find something that wasn't Jewish and Hollywood. Indeed. You'd be hard-pressed not to have the Jewish views without Jews, let's be honest. But thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for, for this week's look at the paper. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. This week has been an historic one for the Kotel, as it's officially been put into Israeli law. A new egalitarian praying space will mean that for the first time in history, men and women will be allowed to pray together at the holiest of sites, the Western Wall. Campaigners from Women of the Wall have fought for years to see this level of change implemented, and so I've been speaking to Anat Hoffman from the organisation to find out why this means so much to them. I started by asking her to tell us about the history of the campaign. Women of the Wall are a multi-denominational group. We're women from Reform, Orthodox, Conservative, Reconstructionist, Secular, we're from all, pla- all, all sorts of places. And we got together starting at the Conference on the Empowerment of Jewish Women, the first feminist conference in Jerusalem on the 5th of December, 1988. The Israeli part, of this group, we didn't even think about coming with the Torah to the wall. This is an idea that American, Canadian, and women from the UK 
brought with them to the conference. We joined them. I, for example, joined because I own a, a folding table and the hotel wouldn't rent the tourists the folding table, so I brought, I schlepped the table from home. The group fought for 27 years in the public arena, in the Knesset, in our parliament, and 14 years in the Supreme Court to try to reach our goal. And our goal is to pray out loud as a group, to wear a talis, that's the prayer shawl, to read Torah, the holy book, and to put on phylacteries, tefillin. That's, that's all what we wanted to do. And for a very long time, it was illegal. In fact, until today, there is a regulation on the law of holy places that one cannot perform a religious act contrary to local custom, which offends the feelings of others. And uh, women were imprisoned for, or at least detained or spent the night in prison for breaking this particular regulation. One of the successes that we won this week is that this regulation will be struck off the law books and no longer be implemented. That regulation, by the way, is called the Women of the Wall Regulation. And it's going to be... So there's no mistaking who it's for then? Yes, it was uh, that kind of regulation that they built around one group. We are now able to wear our talitot, our prayer shawls, proudly. We're able to put on phylacteries. In fact, this Sunday we're having a workshop at the women's section of the wall in the worldwide wrap. It's an international event where women and men all over the world will be learning how to put on phylacteries, and we're going to be doing that at the wall. But the issue of reading Torah is still at large in that we are allowed, the court has allowed us to read from the Torah, but the powers that be does not allow it to, us to bring the Torah to the women's section. So we are in this precarious place where we're allowed to do something, but we're not allowed to bring the object from which this something can be done. Okay, but I mean, I think, Anat, I think it's fair to say, though, that considering after thousands of years of tradition and having it in one particular way, you can't deny that this week has already been a a massive, if not small, (laughs) at the same time, victory for women of the war because there is that first step towards change implemented. But I want to pick up on something that you said before. You said... It's been the same for so long because otherwise it runs the risk of offending others. The others you're talking about is obviously the more orthodox stretch of Judaism. And with that in mind, I suppose I have to ask the question, do you understand why people might be more religious people might be offended by changing the laws that have been in place for thousands of years? I would like to relate to both your points. I agree with you that we are all survivors of 3,000 years of patriarchy, and it's a very old religion and a very old wall, but it's been in Israeli hands for only 50 years. And in these 50 years, it's be, the government of Israel has given the keys to an extreme group that is becoming more and more extreme as time goes by, giving them exclusive rights, the full funding, and absolute control over everything that happens at the wall. Because isn't that what tradition states, though? Isn't that what tradition has stated from years gone by? And that's the reason why it's not necessarily a case of favoritism, is it? Yeah, it is. Because you see, on the men's side, I see all the time evolution of new ideas and new things. It's only in the women's side that seems things seem to be very stagnated. But Let me just say that for a long while, I also believed like you that the problem is that we offend the feelings of other people. 
I'd like to stress. I'd, I'd like to stress. I didn't say that. I'm asking the question. I'm not stating that's what I think. But I'm so sorry. Do please answer. I take yeah. it back. Yeah. I would like to agree with you that one hearing the the language of the regulation, one would think that we are offending the feelings of other people. But in our Supreme Court petition in 2000, the Minister of Religious Affairs was that was actually asked by the court. What's wrong with these with giving these women one hour every month? Give them one hour, five in the morning, six in the morning. Find the hour that causes the least pain to other people. And the minister himself said to the court, it's not that they offend the feelings of other people. They offend the feelings of the wall. And I, as the minister of religious affairs, I know what the wall wants to hear. And I know what the wall wants to see, and it doesn't want to see these women, and it doesn't want to hear these women. This is the reason why in 2000, we won a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court of Israel stating that we have the right at the wall. You understand? It wasn't really people. It's a territorial struggle. I don't want you to speak, to speak or pray or put on phylacteries because the wall gets offended. But is it, I mean, as much as I hear what you're saying, and yes, I and mean, obviously not anyone you're mentioning is necessarily here to answer for themselves or to put their point of view across, but the point has surely got to be that that response, regardless of whether or not it is the holiest of sites such as the wall allegedly talking, as opposed to maybe those in charge talking, is that not them just making the point that it has been that way for so long that, it's almost who are we to question it? Who are we to change it? And whether or not you or anyone listening believes it's right or wrong, is it not that fundamentally Judaism is not there to be necessarily changed? It's there to be observed. Well, religiosity cannot be measured by how we silence and discriminate and ex exclude women. Religiosity has to be measured in other ways. And in Israel, we see more and more rabbis, particularly rabbis who are state-funded, that is getting a f funding from the state, that compete with each other on how religious they are by showing how distant they are from women. Oh, if this rabbi doesn't speak to women, I'm even more religious. I don't even look at women. I keep the cleanliness of the eyes. And I don't even talk about women if they're... I see no women other than my wife and my daughter. When religion becomes, the more devout you are, the more distant you are from half the Jewish people, something is wrong. And when I look at uh, halakha, and halakha is, uh, comes from the word halach, from the root to move, it's not called to stand. Jewish law is called that which moves. We are half the Jewish people. We are Supreme Court judges. We are economists. We won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. Israeli women are marching forward. You can't keep them silent. You can't keep them ex excluded at the wall. And uh, if you do that, you will find a group that resists. And we've resisted for 27 years. We formed a coalition that measures millions of Jews around the planet. We're not the only ones who don't feel at home at the wall. Many tourists, many Israelis who come there feel a lot of coercion, feel some territorial behaviors that make them feel that they're lesser Jews than others, and it shouldn't be like that. And what the government decided this week is that there will be one wall, one entrance, but two separate plazas. There will be a choice. 
Let your feet take you to a place that fits you best. If you want to have the ultra-Orthodox domination and the, the partition and the, and the modesty brigade, go ahead. You'll have a plaza at the northern side of the wall and enjoy it. But if you want a different kind of practice, any kind of other practice, to hold your grandmother's hand in your bar mitzvah, to hold your husband's hand on the eve of your wedding, to dance together. We're going to hold this, the Southern Plaza as a place that is tolerant, pluralistic, and equal. And may the best plaza win. Well, hopefully it is not a battle of the plazas. Just really, really quickly, just to sum it up for me, Anat. Fair enough, this is a, a massive, massive change in the law and obviously it means a great uh, difference to life on the Kotel and for people who want to go there to pray. Can you just sum up for me pretty much in one line, what would be your ultimate goal? What would be Women of the Wall's ultimate goal to see officially changed once and for all at the Western Wall site? I would like Israelis and Jews all over the world to have a choice. Right now there's no choice. For many of us, what, what is given to us there, the one product on the shelf, just does not do. So I want to offer the millions who come to the wall every year a choice. Make up your mind what kind of Judaism you want to uphold. There's more than one way to be Jewish. And in Israel, this is a very important revolutionary idea. More than one way to be Jewish. More than one way to be a woman. More than one way to be a, a man. The essence of pluralism and equality will be acted out at the wall. I think these are Jewish values, not ethnocentrism and chauvinism, but tolerance, equality, and pluralism. Anat Hoffman from Women of the Wall speaking to me there about the new law that sees an egalitarian praying space created where both men and women will be able to pray by the Western Wall. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, blogger Amanda Wayne and actress Kim Ismay. Their discussion will be based along the lines of what we've been hearing, equality and women in Judaism. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, how many times have you heard people strike up comparisons between Islam and Judaism, particularly when it comes to family life? Well, that certainly rings true for comedian Shazia Mirza. She is of Muslim background and she'll be joining Sarah Pascoe and Kerry Godleman as they appear at JW3 this week in a performance entitled Having a Giggle. Love that name. She's been speaking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton to tell us more about the forthcoming evening. Kate started by asking Shazia how her gig at JW3 came about. 
I was in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh Festival doing my new show. The Kardashians made me do it, a show about ISIS. And it's not a joke. I know it sounds like a joke, doesn't it? It does sound like it. sounds like, like a setup and then a punchline, yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's uh, yeah. called The Kardashians Made Me Do It. It's about ISIS and jihadi brides. And somebody, the booker, the main booker from JW3, came to watch my show and she absolutely loved it. And, of course, as normal, there were a lot of Jewish people in my audience. When you say as normal, why as normal? I always get a lot of Jewish people and in And just my for the audience. record, you're not Jewish yourself. No, uh, not that I know of. <laughs> you never so know. So how do you get involved with, with, with our lot? <laughs> we're the same. We are, we are the same. We have when the you say we, tell me who, who we, you well, are. Well, the Asians and the Jewish people are the same. We have the same culture, the same families, the same banter, the same humour, the same work ethic. I mean, the same drive to do well and be the best. The same, our parents are crazy about education. You've got to be a doctor, a lawyer. I mean, you've got to be be an Asian doctor. No, 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 you've got to be a Jewish lawyer. It's not just a a doctor or a lawyer. It is a Jewish lawyer or an Asian doctor. They are terms in themselves. And I've always had a lot of Jewish people in my life. My manager is Jewish. My lawyer is Jewish. My best friends are Jewish. And we just feel very comfortable with each other. We laugh at the same things. And we just understand each other. When my Jewish girlfriends say to me, look, my mother has put me on J-Date. She has put me on J-Date. And she has passed my phone number around to all these women in the community. She's trying to get me a husband. I, I totally understand. I, this is what my mother has been doing for the past 20 years. And this is what we joke about and laugh about. And it's so funny. So this lady came to your show, heard yeah. you, and decided you're going to come down, down to JW3. She sat on the front row. And I, obviously I, I, I picked on her. Where are you from? I'm from JW3. And she said, you've got to come and perform here. I'm, I'm organising a, a comedy night. I want it to be all women. I want you on the bill. And I, I said, fine. I, so why specifically all women? Why is she putting on an all women show? I don't know. I mean, it's a women's comedy night, which you get a lot around London. Very Trying to even up the balance because it is mainly men. Yeah. And there are so many great women out there now. So she organised this night and I said, of course, I'd love to do it. I mean, I've performed in synagogues before. I performed at the uh, Nottingham Progressive Jewish Synagogue last year. I did a Jewish uh, show in Leicester last Sunday. I've performed at Haberdashers, the <laughs> Jewish school. <laughs> really they, is. I mean, it's something really when they're asking a Muslim comedian to come and teach the Jews comedy. I mean, that is just how, how things have changed. I mean, really. <laughs> This is my crowd. I, this is what I get. Gay men and Jewish women. That's fabulous. That, that's my audience. So you're putting this on for any particular age group or can anybody come? Oh, anybody can come. I have to ask you this. Could the rabbi come? I mean, is it quite blue humour? Oh, gosh. Could I you mean, bring your mum? Yes. I mean, obviously. No, I think, you know, the other comedians and myself, we're quite, we're not blue comedians at all it's very insightful very funny and observational type yeah, things yeah yeah i mean i'd say probably 14 plus and jewish people have such a great sense of you they've heard everything god the jews have heard everything haven't they they've had joan rivers jackie mason woody allen you've had the greats you've heard everything there's nothing i think now that you haven't heard or that will shock you that's, and when you sort of were, were growing up, did mm. you have lots of Jewish friends? Were you, was your background, what was your background? Well, my, my mum and dad, I was brought up in a very strict Muslim family. My mum and dad 
weren't that religious then, but now as they're getting older and coming closer to death, obviously, they're getting more and more religious. Beautifully put there. Very <laughs> delicate. They want to get into the afterlife, don't they? <laughs> don't we all? <laughs> so, We've got a little space there. In the most recent years, oh my gosh, they've got really religious. But we had a lot of Jewish friends. My father had a lot of Jewish friends. And it's always something that I've known. It's not something And that how I'm... did you get into comedy? I was a science teacher in the East Were you End. really? In an East End comprehensive, yeah. God, you've got to have a sense of humour then, haven't well, you? Well, they hated me, I hated them. And the only reason I got through it is by telling them jokes. That's how I learned. That was my first audience, was these rough kids in Tower Hamlets. I mean... That's some you, baptism, isn't it? If you used, pardon the pun, really. I mean, the... They used to escape through my lesson, through the windows and say, God, this is boring, miss. Why don't you just shut up? You know, I've never been in a gig where somebody's tried to escape through, my, through the back window through, uh, during a gig or stood there and gone, God, this is rubbish, I'm leaving. So I think I had the worst abuse as a teacher. It really prepared me for stand-up. When I started stand-up, I thought, my God, this is easy. Come on, heckle me. Where yeah. are you? <laughs> Nobody's tried to stab me. They'll throw a chair at me. This is amazing. Extraordinary <laughs> that you were put through that. So then you decided that you were actually holding their attention yeah. by the human. But that's still a transition that you had to make. I started writing comedy. I was always interested in comedy. You know, when I was growing up, my my mum... We always had, like, um, Larry Grayson, Kenny Everett, all the gay ones. My mum liked all the gay ones on TV. My dad loved Dave Allen. And we, and we always just have watched Joan Rivers, Jackie Mason. It always, we knew these people, but I never thought it was a job for me. I just thought, that's what they do. I never thought, God, it's what an Asian woman does, you know. So I never expected to do it myself. So I started writing comedy. And uh, as part of the class, the teacher made me stand up. We, ha- we all had to uh, write about something we were familiar with. We had to talk about something we really hated. It had to be true. It had to be honest. And it had to be personal. So I wrote five minutes on how I hated my moustache and how I had terrible facial Sorry, hair. Sorry, for those listeners, <laughs> Shazia does not have a moustache. Anymore. Any- I mean, oh, it's the anymore. Yeah. I mean, so I wrote about how I had a moustache and terrible facial hair, as all Jewish women can relate to, and all Asian women. A lot of hair removal yeah. goes on. And I wrote about how it ruined my life, how I didn't have any confidence, how I always had my hand over my mouth. And it was serious, it was true, it was honest. But all the people in the class just started laughing, couldn't stop laughing. And I was thinking, why are you laughing? This is just my life. This is the truth about my life. And the teacher said, this is really funny, you should go out onto the comedy circuit and perform this. And I thought, I don't want people knowing about my moustache. I'm not going to tell people. And she said, that is what comedy is. You've got to go out there and perform it and I went to this room above a pub off Tottenham Court Road there were six people and a dog in the audience and I started doing this material five minutes on my moustache and it started to just people could not stop laughing and that was the beginning of me doing stand-up comedy I never thought it would last though I never thought I'd be doing it as a career I was held on to my NUT card because I always felt I'm going to go back to teaching but not back to Tower Hamlet's teaching I know but I always felt like you know, it was a respectable thing to do. I never told my parents. My parents didn't know I was doing comedy. They what do they think of your what you're doing now, then? Well, initially, I mean, I never told them for years until I was going to do Have I Got News For You, and then the night before I told them that I was going to be on there. And people would stop them in the street. They live in Birmingham and say, we, you know, we saw your daughter on TV. She's doing comedy now. And my mum and dad were in denial for years. There was a, no, 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 she has a degree in biochemistry. No, no, she is a science teacher. Totally in denial. They would never talk. We'd sit around the dinner table. It would never be mentioned. 
we just talk about everything else apart from, oh, our daughter's a stand-up comedian. It was really bizarre for years, for about Have eight Have you got any brothers or sisters that went into it? No. I've got three brothers and one sister. There's five of us. And they all do really respectable things. Oh, gosh. But going back to the show, so yeah. there's three girls, three women. Do you, do you kind of knock about off each other or are you very standalone acts? Oh, no. We're all going to do probably 20 minutes, which is a standard set, stand-up comedy. So Sarah will do 20, uh, Kerry will do 20, I'll do 20, and that's it. And how do you know that you're, which order to go in or you're not going to be very similar to this one or that one? Well, oh, we're all very different. We're all really different. Who um, put you together? Was the woman from JW3. Right, okay. So you didn't know them in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, and, I, I mean, she will probably say the order. And then we'll just go on and we'll do 20 minutes each. Well, it sounds like, just from talking to you, it's going to be a fabulous show. If anybody wants to get tickets, how do they go about getting them? Um, they can go to the JW3 website. It's www.jw3.org.uk. And they can just buy them there. And yeah, I'm sure they can buy them on the night as well. They can buy them on yeah, the night, I was going to say. They turn up on the night, yeah. And what night are you performing? On Wednesday, the 10th of February. Comedian Shazia Mirza talking to Kate Fulton there about her forthcoming performance at JW3 alongside Sarah Pascoe and Kerry Godleyman. For more information, as Shazia has just said, you can always go to JW3's website, which is jw3.org. UK. And there you will be able to book yourself some tickets. The tickets are priced £10 each. And it's a reminder, it's this Wednesday, the 10th of February at 8pm. So do head on along if you feel like having a giggle. Sorry, I am not going to get bored of that name. I do not apologise, actually. I think it is brilliant. So do go along if you've got the chance to. Now, on a more serious note, you will recall that on last week's programme, we told you of the story of Lara Casalotti. Now, Lara is from Belsize Park. She's 24 years old, and she desperately needs help to try and find a stem cell donor. And that is because she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of leukaemia just before the end of last year. And the problem was that because of her mixed heritage, she had to try and find someone of mixed heritage as well to try and be the best chance of being a match. Well, you may also recall we told you about an event that the Jewish Museum was hosting in a bid to try and help find that donor. And I'm delighted to say that more than 80 people were signed up as potential stem cell donors at that very event. However, if you weren't able to make it yourself, you might like a quick reminder that you can always go and order a kit online to see whether or not you could potentially be a match by going to delete blood cancer, that's all one word, .org.uk, delete blood cancer, .org.uk. And you can also find out more about Lara by going to match4, that's the number 4, lara.com. And, you know, we always try and do our bit here at The Jewish Views to raise awareness for all sorts of conditions that, let's be honest, affects everyone regardless of their background. Still to come, Rabbi Andrew Shaw with this week's Thought for the Week. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that uh, you've been hearing about throughout the programme so far. And joining me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, blogger and artist Amanda Wayne, and actress Kim Ismay. The subject for this edition is women in Judaism. And you heard earlier on in the programme that a landmark new ruling, 
officially etched in Israeli law means that men and women can pray as equals in a new egalitarian section of the Western Wall. The question is, how should we as Jews be looking to strike the right balance between respecting both men and women, as modern-day societies do, versus adhering to the fundamental basic laws of Judaism, which have remained unchanged for thousands of years? A massive question, one of which I'm sure both our contributors have something to say about. So let's start with you, Kim. It's a very moot subject because you're dealing with not only the halachic side of things and the, the tradition of things, but also the difference between the ways of worship of men and women. And it's all very well saying that men and women are now allowed to pray together at the wall, which is a wonderful thing, but women still can't make up a minion. And in, in orthodoxy, certainly, in, in the more reform movements, they can, and the conservatives in America. But, but it's still a, there's still a huge, huge chasm, I think. There's a woman that's appeared on the, in this part of the programme many times who is the wife of an orthodox rabbi. Mm. And she believes that orthodox women should be allowed to take a full part in the programme. And she's talked about it quite a lot. Mm. I, I, I have to say I agree, but then I, I have a more... A far more secular view of things. I have I've had a reform upbringing, so we don't have a mechitzah at our synagogue. We have everyone sits together. Women can make part of a minion. We've had female rabbis, which of course you wouldn't have in the more orthodox side of things. So the equality is a very difficult thing because men and women aren't the same. We're different. That's not to say we shouldn't be treated equally and given equal status. But there are different roles that obviously men can't do and that women can't do. Amanda, so. what do you think? I always remember, I went to JFS, that famous school, and I remember being having a discussion of similar about the differences between men and women. And I think one particular teacher told us that as women, we should realise that because we have a physical embodiment and connection to creation, because we, we can be mothers and because we, you know menstruate and all those things we have physical reminders of our connection to our creator so the need to pray and be close to our god is in the same way as men is is is, is not the same we shouldn't be treated equally because we have those sort of blessings in our life in a way and it was sort of pitched in that way and i just mm. thought well no that doesn't really wash with a bit me of spin, frankly, yeah it's I'm a afraid. bit of spin yeah you can't do this you can't do this you can't take part in that however you're better than us. Yeah, actually, it's, it's because you're better. Well, I don't think it is because... This mm. is funny you should say that because I spent some time this week, a whole day this week, with my rabbi, Orthodox rabbi, mm -hmm. and it was a question that I brought up and he said exactly what Amanda just said about the women are close to creation and therefore don't need to pray. Mm. And, and I said, isn't that a bit of a cop-out? But uh, he didn't have any answer for me. I, I don't have an issue, I don't think, with this praying together at the wall. I'm not uh, from a Reformed background. I'm from a United Synagogue background. Yeah. I don't call myself Orthodox because I don't think I am Orthodox. I'm just You're traditional, though, aren't you? Traditional. Traditional, yeah. traditional. Yeah. Yes. And I don't have an issue with men and women praying together at the wall because if you take Israel as a whole, it's a fairly Reformed society. It's, quite, it's surprisingly but, secular, well, I think. Well, actually, can I say, I find something very surprising. This now... Women are allowed to wear tefillin at the wall and talit. Mm. That one I find a little bit strange, but, you know, that's the talit, I don't mind, my but background. tefillin does 
sort of yeah, messy. It's a little odd, isn't it? You know, I find it very odd. I know. That's a very strange thing. I was I was having this very discussion with a friend of mine recently because she wants to delay in the service and she wears talosim and and, a, and kippah and, and but she won't she won't later fill in. She 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 doesn't do that. But she said, oh, you know, if I wanted to, I, I would. So it's a personal choice to not do it. And I said, yes, I, I think you, your religious, your observance, because I think there's there's so many different levels of Judaism. There's your heritage, there's your observancy. And I know people who are really very observant, both male and female, but not very spiritual at all. It's almost like it's a uniform that they wear. Mm. Yes. And I also know people who are incredibly, incredibly traditionally devout, as in they will keep a completely a glut kosher home, really, really kosher home, and they'll go out and they'll, have, they'll eat anything. Hmm. They'll eat prawn cocktail followed by pork chops, and I, that I don't get. That, that, it doesn't make sense, does it? But, no, they're, they're on the level of being seen to be Jewish. Yeah, but then they're, they're really wonderful people, and it's, it's, it's all a very... There are so many different areas of Judaism, and I, I completely agree with you that it's often sold that Judaism is a matrilinear religion and it's always passed through the woman and the woman is is wonderful and, and amazing. But, however, you can't take a major religious part... In a service. In a service. Yeah, yeah. we were talking about... You can't be bat mitzvah in an orthodox. You can be eshechal, you can be bat chal, but you can't be bat mitzvah, which is a different thing. It's a different you service. can be bat mitzvah in the, in the Sephardi synagogue. In the United as well, they do bat mitzvah, but it's not... It's, it's, it's drizzled not, in, really. It's not like the reform where you get called up to... You get called up. You do You do exactly the same as the mm. boys. And my, yeah. my bat, I was bat mitzvah at 13, and I, my service was exactly the same. Male, female, whatever. No, they they won't do it during the no, service. That's they interesting in itself the because this this woman I was talking about who who is married to an Orthodox rabbi and is very Orthodox. Mm. She believes that women should be called up to the Torah, but that women should enter the uh, teva mm. from the other side from men. It's interesting because I don't think there's anything halakhically wrong with that, is there, to, for a woman to be called up to the Torah? Well, according to her... No, to, I don't think there is anything halakhically wrong, but it can't be part of the the service of an orthodox service. So they can get called up, so it but it doesn't the make then. up the service, no. So it's not the same There are then. some yeah. synagogues, orthodox synagogues, which do have women's only services, aren't there? Yes. yes. They can do everything. My yeah. family in New York, they have... Uh, the, the New York Orthodox seem to have a far more progressive view, I think. So, sorry, I, I'm, I've been quiet for a while because I guess I'm just observing. I feel like I don't know enough about this subject. But how are women expected to pray then? Because when we all pray, we're all entitled to pray. So what's the best way for a woman to be mm. seen but not heard praying? Well, now you can because the chief rabbi has recently said, for example, that it's perfectly all right for women to say Kaddish. Right, and so, so it should we, be. we weren't for me. And so before that, be. what that wasn't. Yeah, they, right. they can, I, it's another question I asked my rabbi about saying woman saying kaddish. He said they can say kaddish, but it doesn't make up part of the service, so it's still putting the woman down. Mm. They can say kaddish for a parent, but it's better if a man says it. You know, they, he know. didn't actually say that. In no, those but words. That, that's the thing. But how would they, how would people react if this was just like in the general society putting women down? I mean, there'd be uproar, wouldn't Yeah, there? I mean, when you try and explain this to to non-Jewish people, it sounds like complete nonsense, doesn't it? Like, that, that, mm. that a woman can't utter certain words. Mm. Why? Mm. I mean, at a I certain just, time. At a certain time, <laughs> a certain it, it's preferable well, the, that it's, the, it's the man that says those the words. The Christian church has come round to more progressive thinking, but I don't think 
Islam has come round to more progressive not, thinking. Yeah, Again, not all of the exactly Christian the churches. There are always not levels all. of yeah, everything. There's different sects of all of it. It's really hard to talk But generally. there is one yeah. thing which is absolutely true, that women have been, and it's not a, a wrong idea, it really is true that women are believed to have to be superior to men. My grandmother ran the house. My grandfather was a rabbi. My grandmother ran the house. Mm. And she said, my job is to make care of the house, my husband and, and my children. children. And I can come to synagogue and I can join in the prayers. But I don't give the prayers. I don't do the yeah, prayers. Yeah, but I think superior or inferior, two sides of the same coin. I think equality is what we're trying to achieve here, isn't it? It's not mm. that women are better yeah. or greater or better homemakers or, you know, it's... No, I, th- that's I, th- outdated. I think most Orthodox people, I'm not just going to say Rabbonin, but most mm. Orthodox people would look on the woman as being essential because she does keep the, the home kosher, she does bring up the children, she keeps them going into, into Judaism where the man is off, if you like, just praying. Yeah, I'm quite interested in the Orthodox, <laughs> uh, in Orthodox women's roles in kind of having a career and stuff because I don't really you know I don't I, really know much about that world but is that just again, discouraged? It depends, on, it depends on the level no as far as I know and I have I have a wide broad spectrum of family my family is quite odd and join the queue um, I think everyone's family is mildly odd but I have everything from non-Jewish I mean actively non-Jewish people in my family and very very from in fact, the, the most from little segment of my family is just all made Aliyah. So they've, they've all gone to Israel and they're living in somewhere quite remote, I think, with lots of people they know and they're having a wonderful time and it's perfect for them. But I think there are levels of that. And I think, I mean, my, my cousin worked and I have lots of cousins who are very from and have been encouraged to have a career. But it's always... I've been having a really interesting conversation. That, that will be until oh, you're you. talking about yeah, your women about, cousins. Yes. Your yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was having an interesting conversation with a friend of mine who's in quite a sort of modern Orthodox community and the kind of reception that she gets about the work that she does compared to her husband. And she sort of just has these token conversations. And how's it going for you, dear? Yeah, good, OK. Oh, really? And what about that, you? That doesn't happen in our, our show. Our rabbi's I mean, wife quite, is, a, is a dental hygienist and she works almost full-time as a dental hygienist. Mm. And, and people talk to her about how's work going and, and stuff like that. It's not, it's not sort of dismissed. Mm. Yeah. And, and she's working and she's looking after the house yeah. as well. I think They're it's community, it community and, and levels of observance mm. to observance. I, I, think. I must say, I'd like, I, you mentioned American Judaism, mm. which is what I call it, American Judaism, and I very much lean towards that because they, they do seem to be more relaxed, as do the Spanish as and Portuguese. As Sephardi. 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 Yes. Yeah. They have a much more relaxed attitude towards... Whereas the United Synagogue and that orthodoxy, they seem to be very restrictive. And again, within that, there are levels. Because because not being that observant and not being orthodox at all, my cousin, who has now made Aliyah, she was, I found her very, very from. And yet she'd say, oh, no, we're a bit lax where we live in our community. She said, the others are much more observant than we are. (laughs) How? (laughs) But she worked. I I don't know whether she... She went back to work when her youngest was sort of in the sort of late... Well, in in the Sephardi synagogue, for example, the committee now is run by men Mm. and women. That the the women are elders and and president and vice president and all the other things. Yes. 
they, they can't, of course, sit up, stand on the teva uh, on, on Shabbat and, mm. and decide who's going to be called up. But uh, no. nonetheless, you, you it's know something. Was, it, watch this space in 100 years and see what it's all yeah. about. You know, how, where will it progress to? Move far more slowly than yeah, other forms of egalitarianism. I think. I think it will. Move I always remember my grandfather telling me when I was a child, he said, what we call reform now he said, will be the orthodox in another 20 years' time. Mm, yeah. I don't know. Yes, that traditional, that that be, traditional yes. Judaism is splitting, isn't it's it? It's splitting, it's exactly. It's becoming very orthodox and, and reform. But, you know, the people that are, are reform, progressive, liberal or whatever may move to be more orthodox, and that, that middle-of-the-road traditional might mm. pick up and, and some, again, and some will move down, of course. And some yeah. communities get yeah. more religious within a movement, I think. Like, if I think if there, if there was a place, a real place for women in a more orthodox synagogue, then I'd, I'd enjoy it much more. But, see, just by default, I, I find myself in a reform or liberal would, environment. Would you, would you actually enjoy the services mm. which, generally, in, in an orthodox synagogue, are the services are carried out in Hebrew and, and very little English, except maybe for the... The, the prayer for the royal family, mm. which is the only reformers split again. Again, each individual shul is different, but at mine, it's it's about sixty forty Hebrew, I would say. Mm. But I can follow much better in a reform because it's not just canted under the breath, and uh, everyone yeah. just mutters to themselves. No, they, they, you actually <laughs> hear you the actually words. And there's, there's, another in, there's another interesting aspect about reforms and reforms. There's much more decorum, isn't there? There is much more to call. Women don't that's talk and show their photos of their grandchildren nearly as much, I've noticed. Yeah, that's because they, the people are sitting together. And they don't, give you, that, me now, they don't give you that funny look when you walk through the door. Who's this one? Whenever I go to a form shawl and I sit next to my wife, she keeps me quiet. In my own shawl, I chat to everybody that's around, you know, because yeah. I like talking. Well, my family have always thought of... My, my late wife used to think, and my, my daughter thinks it... She comes to the synagogue because I go to that synagogue. That's the Father's synagogue. But she says, it would be such a pleasure if we could sit with you yes. and you could tell the children about it. Yeah, I think if women had a more active role in the synagogue, you know, they wouldn't be so distracted by all those but, sort but you of see, this woman nonsense things. About, things and, you're right about that. This woman I was telling you about who is married to an Orthodox rabbi is convinced that Orthodox synagogues will very soon have that happening. They're sitting together, sitting together, oh, and women being know. orthodox. Well, it depends which I think orthodox. Be a long way off. Yeah, it's a very sure. long way off. A I'm very long way. Even if it's a token mechitzah that you can see through and look through, it will still be there. With 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 women in shawl. I, when my children were small, I got a son and a daughter. They used to come to. Shul. I started going back to shawl when I was saying kaddish to my father. Mm. Right, my children. Had, one of them has just been born, and then the next one arrived two years later, and. As they got older, they would come to shore with me, not with their mother. They would sit with me. And my daughter, I was going to say, came religiously, came every week with me <laughs> and sat with me. When she got to an age where she couldn't sit with me any longer, she stopped going. Mm. She yeah. didn't actually want to sit with her mother in the, yeah. in the women's no. section. She didn't it's actually want to really go. It's not really much fun around that part, to no. be honest. Or upstairs. Really, yeah, upstairs looking down. Well, I know a woman, a woman who is a member of the New London synagogue, which is meant mm. to be more progressive. Mm. But... When they told her that she could go and sit downstairs, she absolutely refused to. She said, no, I've always sat upstairs. It's right that women should sit upstairs. And she wouldn't go down. Did they, did they bring them downstairs to sit together or bring them downstairs to I'm sit I'm not sure about that. I think the maybe the they front. sat in, in one side of the synagogue, sat, yeah. women, women yeah. sat on one side, and men, but I honestly don't know for mm. sure. 
And I mean, that's that's one that, that that's a tradition thing. It's and sometimes you you feel wrong doing a thing or not doing a thing because it's how you've been brought up. And I think when something's ingrained in your makeup, not not been sort of pushed into you, but something's in just in your DNA, it's very hard you'd, to change. You'd it. feel very very alien, wouldn't it? To, well, to suddenly yeah. change. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately, we've um, we've run out of time, so we've got to stop there. But thank you all very much indeed. Actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, blogger and artist Amanda Wayne, and actress Kim Ismay. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. And you could email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Just before our rabbinic thought for the week, I think a lot of the British public have been mourning the sad passing of Sir Terry Wogan. I had the good fortune of meeting Terry on more than one occasion, and he was a, a delightful and charming man. As a matter of fact, I once at a BBC radio programme, and what was then called the Light Programme, which of course is now Radio 2, and I was told that my programme was coming off the air for three months by my then-producer, who said I had nothing to worry about and that it would be back because they were trying out a young Irishman by the name of Terry Wogan. <laughs> and, and because of that moment, I told Terry once that his career was entirely thanks to me. And as many of you know, Terry worked with my daughter Gabby for 12 years as well, and he'll be very sadly missed. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi. As a child in Jewish primary school, I remember being a bit upset when this week came around. Because this week we read Parshat Mishpatim, which is the start of the laws of the Torah in great detail. Tort laws, civil laws and eventually moving into the sacrifices in the Book of Ayikra, building of the Mishkan, and so on and so forth. And why I was upset as a kid is because I wanted the stories. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, splitting of the Red Sea, ten plagues, the things that were the films, the musicals, the exciting parts of life. It's no fun to read about laws and laws and laws as a kid. But of course, as I grew up and matured, I realized that there's a massively important message here because yes, there is so much in Judaism that is celebratory and large and important and ceremonial. But what really actually keeps us going has for thousands of years is the day-to-day -day stuff, the laws, how we treat each other, how we look after each other, the laws of kashrut, the laws of keeping Shabbat, the laws of celebrating the Chagim. They are the daily life of a Jew, which makes us an all-round Jew. And we need both. We need the big occasions, the weddings, the mitzvahs, the celebrations, the Rosh Hashanahs, Yom Kippurs, when everyone comes together. But that's not enough. If we don't have the daily life of a Jew, the keeping of the law, the actual observance of Torah, the putting it into practice, then in essence we don't have Judaism in its full glory. In some ways, as a kid, I may not have realised that. But thankfully, I grew up. Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Anat Hoffman, Shazia Mirza, 
Tony Honigberg, Amanda Wayne and Kim Ismay, who were on the schmooze, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to our team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And don't forget, you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.